Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. As unexpected guests, it never hurts to be polite. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, for episode 206, The Sound of Thunder, comes to you now via reorganized cartilage Karen spikes. And just a bit of fleet news before we arrive at the episode. Pete, where do short treks come from? Writer Bo Yan Kim confirmed to us that the short trek The Brightest Star was filmed concurrently with this episode, which makes sense, but I think was not the case with the other short treks. It was very interesting to watch this episode, and they, they incorporated the, I'm air quoting here, flashbacks. Um Yes, they, they film them concurrently. I'm not entirely sure that that was the original plan. I mean, obviously, you could have written this stuff that uh, Captain, then Lieutenant Georgiou of the uh, Archimedes arrives, and then they went and actually filmed it and incorporated it into the episode. Nonetheless, it certainly enhances everything. I know that the... Uh, the writers of this episode, you mentioned uh, Bowie, um, as well as Erica Lippolt, her writing partner. They were out in front telling people to go watch The Brightest Star prior to seeing this episode. Certainly does enhance it. Is it necessary to watch it? It's not. But more Saru, more Kaminar. How can you go wrong? It certainly is a much more complete story with the short trek there uh and great to see them out there pushing the episode that they wrote uh they of course producers this season on star trek discovery and uh, co-showrunners for the forthcoming section 31 show so goodness abounding all around uh, the 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 airing of this episode and now for our mission briefing Over images of his homeworld of Kaminar, Saru delivers a poignant voiceover that explains we all come from somewhere and carry that place with us wherever we go as we transition to his quarters aboard Discovery, where he puts on his Starfleet badge and instinctually feels for his now missing threat ganglia. In the ready room, Tilly notes that uh, her and Arium have been working through the Sphere's data. Saru's voiceover continues, talking about losses and growing from losses. The buff, smooth Culber's there, reflecting as well. Saru approaches, and they kind of mutually reflect on the uh, inconvenience of being there. But Culber does not quite feel like himself, Pete. He doesn't. Simultaneously, Matt, uh, Saru talks about him maybe uh, becoming who he's meant to become through this experience. Dr. Pollard then explains to Saru that the cartilage that housed his threat ganglia is reorganizing to accommodate a new type of keratin-based tissue, which look like spikes growing in like teeth. Uh, he, of course, has no frame of reference with any other Kelpian. His neurotransmitter expression pattern um, has changed compared to the ones taken a year ago. She, Dr. Pollard, is uncertain what that means, but thinks his fear responses are being repressed. 
Without fear, Saru seems to have lost the very thing that defines him, but he feels there's a grander purpose they're being guided toward, like some kind of red angel. Or some brand new, totally cool showrunner dad. But I digress, Beat. Uh, I love, in this classic small C, Star Trek moment here, Pollard, with all the whistles and bells of 23rd century science, she, of course, can't give a definitive uh, prediction as to the future because Saru is the only Kelpian uh, in the database. So again, this wonderful moment of technology has brought us this far, but we're still kind of at the great unknown. Uh, the story moves to the ready room. We see Tyler in blue uniform. He's blending in, Pete. Uh, he repeats, for those of us at home who may have forgotten, that the Red Angel may be having a time incursion. Using some of that uh, that particular language there. It appears at a crisis. Or, Pete, does it create them? Pike gives us a quick recap that the Terralisium survivors were saved and that the Red Angel appeared to help out young Burnham. Uh, but again, is there enough data to reach a helpful conclusion? No. Tyler asks if the Red Angel could have caused Spock to break down. Pike says he made no mention of it when he asked for leave from the Enterprise. But Burnham agrees with Tyler. It's difficult to assess the Red Angel's nature and motivation with so few data points. They need more info and Spock. Captain Leland, we hear, of Section 31 has come up empty in the search for Spock. Um, and uh, Pike is then paged to the bridge um, where we learn that there's a new signal outside of Federation space. The newly confident Saru doesn't immediately get out of the captain's chair as Pike approaches. Awoshikan pinpoints the signal over an M-class planet listed in the Federation database as Kaminar, interrupts Saru. It's his home world. Luckily, Pete, everybody is so surprised by this that they kind of are shocked. They all give a dramatic pause, which gives Jeff Russo an opportunity to let the music <laughs> swell. Boom, hit the credits. The credits show all the regular regulars, along with Shazad Latif, who I guess now is back to being a regular regular. Uh, Pete, we have a question answered. Berg and Harberts remain credited as executive producers, though at this point, no longer a part of the production. The episode is written, of course, by fan favorites uh, Bojan Kim and Erica Lippolt and directed by Doug Arniokoski. So Rue briefs Burnham, Pike, and Tyler about Kaminar's inhabitants, the Kelpians and the predator Baul, who achieved warp capability 20 years ago. The USS Archimedes made first contact with them after receiving a transmission from Kaminar. But once communication was established, the Baul High Council proved hostile. Turns out it was Saru who sent the Federation the transmission by co-opting the Baal's technology uh, over flashbacks from Short Trek number three, The Brightest Star. Then Lieutenant Giorgio received Saru's message and granted him asylum. Pike points out the seeming convenience of the Red Angel's signal appearing over the home world of his first officer. Is Discovery's interest in the Red Angel reciprocal? There are no angels in Kelpian culture, only the Great Balance. 
the Ba'ul maintain the balance with their superior technology and mastery over Kelpians. No Kelpian has even seen a Ba'ul in living memory. Translation, don't expect a warm welcome from the isolationists. Isolationists indeed, Pete, sort of building some sort of space, I don't know, wall. Tyler suggests caution in approaching. uh, Pike wants to be polite in their approach. Uh, They enter the bridge proper as the ship arrives. They've just missed the signal. Bryce, however, is told to hail the Ba'ul. Uh, there's no response, although the Ba'ul scan the Discovery's weapon systems. Tyler again urges caution. Why is there a narrative that they are here for a reason, he questions. Uh, Seru rather pontificates as to the oppressive nature of the Ba'ul, then suggests the chief priests could be key in understanding what's going on. Burnham and Pike note that they're in a gray area. It's not black and white when it comes to the Prime Directive. Uh, Burnham is ordered as uh to take the lead as a xenoanthropologist and this turns pete at saru just into a tizzy it does and this was really really well done by jones throughout the episode these moments of of tension what with his own crew in regards to his home world and the deception that's gone on here um he takes exception to this uh but burnham manages to convince Pike to allow Saru to come along after this tense discussion that has everybody on the on the bridge paying attention. Uh, Pike reminds them the mission is to gather information about the Red Angel, not start a war. He tells them to start in Saru's village. And this, of course, done with Burnham having the, hey, let's lower our voices and <laughs> but let's let's stop fighting, especially in front of the crew, since this is mighty Captain Pike and. Nobody wants to tell Saru he's being a jerk, but he is. Uh, the story moves to sickbay. Pollard has an update for Culber. It's all normal, and Stamets, Stamets is glad uh, that Culber is him again. Although it turns out Culber is a new man, pristine, says Pollard. Even his scar is gone. One that he earned climbing Cabo Rojo when he was 16. The injury from that inspired him to go to medical school, and Stamets completely zips past the whole he's missing things from his old life. Ultimately, Culber is cleared for duty. Yeah, and brings up certainly some interesting things, apart from the way that Culber is acting, kind of spaces out during conversations. Uh Pollard reasons here that his new nervous system is still adjusting to his new body. She's going to continue to monitor him, but he can soon resume his normal life. Burnham and Saru beam to the surface in native garb, seeing the Ba'ul pylon erected in each village, um, observing them as the watchful eye. Burnham's scans show that the pylon is connected to a vast network, which must have taken generations to implement. Saru explains the two species have become so intertwined that it's difficult to tell where one begins and the other ends. The fishing village is quiet as the day's work is done, and it will soon be nightfall when the Kelpians rarely venture out. It all seems peaceful, except for the culling and the priest's cooperation in it. Saru's father was an unwitting collaborator, real 
interesting language that Saru uses throughout now, knowing the truth. For 18 years, he's dreamt of returning, but he sees it differently now. The watchful eye blinks on as they move up the beach. Pete, we see the lovely Fredalia flowers everywhere, and I believe you have more on the background of it. Yeah, Bowie had tweeted shortly after the episode aired that the red flower that was seen in The Brightest Star and then in this episode, the Fredalia, is native to Saru's home planet, Kaminar. They named this, she along with Erica Lipholt, um, for their friend Frederick Kim, who was a physician by training and a writer by calling a few years before. Fred passed away tragically due to a sudden brain aneurysm gone too soon with so many stories left untold. He loved all things Star Trek and wrote Forgotten Light, a short story that was published in Star Trek Strange New Worlds 7, which was done by Pocket Books. His legacy lives on in this flower, and that will forever be part of the Star Trek canon. Keep an eye out for Fredalia's in this news. This week's new episode, they told people with the little uh, red flower emoji there. So really touching tribute to their friend. Pete, Saru, and Burnham, and us see that Serana is not far away. She is the priest now. She thought that Saru had been taken away by the watchful eye. And Saru admits that he found his future in the stars. He shares, Pete, despite this notion of this gray area of the Prime Directive, which I thought was going to be like, well, we can get in there a little bit, but still not upset the, uh, you know, the order of the, uh, the Kelpians. Saru shares that Starfleet is committed to exploration and peace and new life. Then uh, he introduces Serana to Burnham, who brings with her the concept of Star uh, the Starship Discovery and the Universal Translator and hundreds of thousands of life forms. Serana most mind-blowing day ever they share fredalia tea back in serana's hut where saru learns their father reached his vaharai not long after he left serana still harbors anger for him having misled them and it's going to be a longer conversation they tell serana about the red angel and she reports seeing a fiery sign uh, but she's upset because it's taken this for Saru to return to his home world. Just then there is rumbling and bellowing indicating the Ba'ul have observed Saru's return. Sarana chastises him again for upsetting the balance and tells him to return to the stars because there's no longer a place for him on Kaminar. Indeed, as Saru and Burnham step outside, the watchful eye is glowing, the night sky is lighting up. Uh, definitely a, a fearful moment, and the away team beams on up. In the transporter room, they're back, and uh, the ship goes to yellow alert. Saru and Burnham are hailed to the bridge. Uh, on the bridge, we see the Ba'ul hailing the ship. Pike takes the call. A wavering, downright scary voice says that something was taken. A Kelpian. Pike talks of keeping the peace. Saru then speaks back, and no one seems happy about that. Saru talks of evolving, and then all of a sudden there are ten Ba'ul sentry ships sent to intercept. They are huge. They encircle the Discovery. They want Saru, but Pike says that he will defend the ship and Saru as well. 
With that, the village pylon is warmed up. At least that's what the sensors say. Uh, and Seru has another outburst. He is ordered off the bridge and in a great shot, uh, similar to the one Pete used in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek. He gets into the lift, goes down a few decks, door opens, and he steps out into it all in one shot. The crew scattering red alert. But Pete Seru is looking naughty. Prior to this, before right before his outburst on the bridge, great shot where he, uh, in anger, destroys a pad in his bare hands uh, before the outburst. So, again, you cannot credit both the, uh, the physical and the verbal acting of Doug Jones enough in this episode. Off of the turbo lift there, he heads into the transporter room where he relieves a crewman and he sets a minute timer to beam down. Of course, Burnham knows what he's going to do, tries to stop him, even draws a phaser on him. Um, but he says that wouldn't Burnham even do this for her own brother and she allows Saru to beam down. Thank goodness, Pete, he set a 60-second timer, not like a 15-second timer, because then they couldn't have had that conversation, which would have then informed her own personal arc, which would have then informed the end of the episode, which would have then informed next week. But Pete, speaking of the transporter, the bridge reads his transport, and they understand that Severu has gone down to surrender himself. The sentry ships power down and return to the planet, all while Owo tracks Severu until he's gone, hold for shocked reaction to go to the act break. In the science lab where uh, Tilly and Arium continue to work up the sphere with this 100,000 years of delicious galaxy pie, they're trying to ascertain if there's information about the Baul and what they might be hiding. Pete, as they comb through all that science, Burnham suspects that the Ba'ul were not surprised by Saru's uh, revelation about Vaharai. That's, you know, that it's not this deadly thing. Uh, Arium has found information on the Kelpians from the Sphere, and uh, it's all combed to lead to the conclusion, what is Saru? The story moves to Saru on the Ba'ul ship. Uh, it's dark, and it's cold, and it's a redress of... Well, you know what, Pete? This time it does not look like a redress of a prior set. It looks wholly original and downright scary. I have to disagree, and normally you're much quicker to notice the redresses that I do. This looks very much like a redress of the transporter room. Pete, it was funny you were, that, that you say that because I initially thought that it was a redress of the um, the brig, Uh Bottom line is, if we're disagreeing, I guess, whether it's a redress or a new set or whatever, it uh, they're doing a good job of it not being like, hey, this is clearly the Shento Bridge with a second section added in the center or something like that. So uh, I, I guess kudos in that we disagree. Bottom line, though, Pete Serana is beamed into the Baul ship as well, this Baul holding area. Uh, and Serana recaps seeing him leave, and that inspired her to be a priest. He was free, though irony of ironies, he is now not. Uh, with that, Pete, a probe droid enters uh, no Darth Vader, but it scans them, throws him to the wall. And then, Pete, out of the water pool comes a creature, a slick black oil creature with red eyes and the stuff of nightmares. 
it is. And I know a lot of people were uh, speculating online. What a, 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 a black oily creature that, uh, you know, is malevolent that we've seen something similar before. Is there a connection? But uh, seems that there is not a direct connection, of course, alluding to the next generation murderous uh, oil slick of Armis. Back on Discovery, Burnham finds something to be fascinating. There were biosciences scanned by the sphere, and they can separate out different life signs. In the past, the Ba'ul were par- barely present and once saw the Kelpians as predator. Back to the Ba'ul. In my notes, I keep saying ship. I like that they make us think it's a ship. We later, of course, learn that it is the Ba'ul. Secret base. Secret <laughs> underwater moon base. Oh, it's a bond complex completely. Um, but uh, on the Saru Lake Base 1, uh, uh, Saru's new ganglionic claws form spikes at the uh, the bowel there. And the bowel says that uh, the species does not deserve a second chance, that the great balance keeps all from being destroyed. Saru calls this fiction and says that the Ba'ul is supported by technology and otherwise weak. That's right, Pete. If you can't do it yourself without the help of technology, you are weak. You know, I have to confess, I was a little underwhelmed by the things that came out of Saru's head here. I, I get how it would have been, you know, written on the page, but I think in terms of the special effect, it just doesn't come across. It's like a cross between a, a Venus fly trap with the, you know, the sides of it. And then it's supposed to also be like a scorpion and, you know, shoot things off. And of course the bowel are ready for it and have a force field, I guess. Um, I think maybe the threat of it just would have been a little bit better done than actually showing us that Saru has things in his head that shoot now. I found the line curious that the Ba'ul is supported by technology and otherwise weak. I mean, how does Saru think he got to the surface today? It was technology. How has he learned all these things? It was technology. Uh, Pete, maybe this is just... Saru unhinged as he as he settles into his new uh, his new physical state. Uh, bottom line though is there's the probe droid, or at least another one. It's ready to turn Saru's face into scrambled eggs, but he breaks free. Saru smash. Uh, he is strong and confident, and it's repeated that the great balance is a lie, which prevents Kelpians from reaching their potential. Uh, with those pieces of the probe droid, Saru starts to. He starts to make a thing, and uh, that takes us to Discovery, where Burnham repeats to Pike what Saru told us. Uh, suddenly, the Ba'ul are ha- hailing, but wait, it's not the Ba'ul, it's Saru. You see, Pete, he was putting pieces together to make himself a communicator. He was. It, if only he had had practice in doing this before. Oh, wait, he has. So uh, by being able to co-opt the technology as he's done before and this with uh the good folks aboard discovery 
here being able to now make contact with him history can repeat itself uh one problem pete discovery can't get a lock on this particular communication burnham info shares the truth and serana knows to change hearts and minds will take time so what will speed things up we have Tilly give some input. The Sphere had uh, had given a clue. If they use a frequency from it to advance all Kelpians, to give them all Vahari, that will give proof the Kelpians are more than rage, more than just angry creatures. And Pete, Saru hopes they knew balance can be made. Yeah, and this is where laying the seeds uh, literally and figuratively through what we've seen is the previous story with uh, the brightest star really pays off uh, Sarah's ability again to reverse engineer this technology and trigger uh, the premature Vahari of the entire Kelpian species. On the planet, we get readings that uh, this Vahari is affecting 63% of Kelpians and rising, uh, but at the lake, you know, Pete, how the village was lakeside. Uh, a structure starts to rise up. It is 50 kilometers across, and it may or may not be where Obi-Wan found the clones. I'm just saying. <laughs> Wrong galaxy, but, you know, parallel Kelpian stuff. Com- I don't know. Com- Kaminar? Camino? I don't know, Matt. That's what I'm saying, right? Uh, Discovery calls it the Baul Stronghold making it clear that we can call it the Baul Stronghold. And that's where Saru and Sarana are. Uh, the Stronghold starts to power up all the Baul tech, ready to kill all Kelpians. Pike hails them. He will not allow an entire race to be exterminated. And I love here, we have Pike in kind of, you know, the, the best of Starfleet mode. He offers Starfleet to be a mediator, but also as a source of aggression if needed. Great line, great, great line, as Pike orders photon torpedoes to be readied. Yes, this process, Matt, which I am uh, calling the uh, the disembowelment, um, you know, really drawn out as far as the tension. And to see Pike at perhaps his most positively... Uh, authoritarian in this episode again continues to enhance this character we've been told for years and years and years and seen so little of of his ability as a leader we see something fire and it's unclear exactly what was going on and that's not a mistake pete uh it's Everybody isn't quite sure what's going on. Uh, ultimately, though, Saru sees the source of this firing. It is the Red Angel, and uh, we see it as clearly as we have yet. That's also no mistake either. Owo reads a massive EM uh, strike, and Discovery isn't sure what's happening. Detmer says the amount of energy to stop this, it's impossible. But we see that Serana and Saru are still seeing the Red Angel, and this is what he came to find, the Red Angel, and it has saved them in a neat little story moment. It has. We get our clearest look yet at this entity, uh, the subject of which we're really going to need to pour over. Um, but the involvement 
of the Red Angel here and the subsequent disappearance. Uh, very, very important, not only here, but going forward. On the beach, Kelpians are now free and empowered, noting their lack of ganglia. Pete, they note it, as an actor might, by touching the back of their head and going, ooh. Uh, Serana says a true balance must be restored and says that no one needs to be afraid anymore. She smiles at Saru. Up in the mess hall, Tyler eats alone. Pike joins him, sharing a pad. It's Saru's report, shared in spirit of cooperation. Uh, he saw the Red Angel with, you know, his better eyes and whatnot, a, human, a humanoid in a mechanized suit with very advanced tech, maybe future tech. Uh, it's someone. <laughs> I like the alien. echo effect that you just created there through some sort of time incursion. <laughs> um, it's someone, human or alien, manipulating the fate of species. Who is this time traveling being on its own agenda? Is the question asked. All something Fantastic Geek will pour over in a segment or two. Uh, Pike says that technology saved the day today, and Section 31 and Control seem paranoid. I must confess, Pete, this is the first time in my mind that Section 31 and Control have been spelled out as separate entities, at least to me. Uh, and that makes the name Control a lot more weird and controlling. Uh, Tyler, however, highlights that 31 is what prevents wars. So the age-old thing here of just give up a little freedom so that we can make sure you have freedom. But Pete, elsewhere on the ship, Serana looks out, seeing Kaminar. She's in Saru's quarters. She sees his garden. But will she take his hand and stay? She says no. She must return to the planet for her people. She knows now that Saru left Kaminar in hope, and hope has brought him back. She beams down, and Saru is saddened. How important has uh, Saru's family become? I mean, we've got him as the person, as the uh, member of his species that made it possible for uh, the Federation to get involved in the first place and come to uh, visit their planet. He joins Starfleet and now his sister as this priest who is related to him and uh, a, a voice if not the most important voice uh, still on her planet for all Kelpian. Well, I think the story gives that impression. And if we return to Kaminar five years later and she's Madam President, you know, we're on a trajectory where that could happen. So in terms of the convenience of the story, I think it's conveniently shown to us. Flip side is, and perhaps a bit more objectively away from the subjectivity of the story, you know, she is just one priestess who, why did she become a priest? You know, she was the, she was the daughter of a preacher man and followed that path as well. Yes. Inspired by her brother's exit as well. So I think you get kind of both, you get both sides of it's a small world and no, it's not at the same time. Can we take a minute to just praise actress Hannah Spear, Matt, and what a tremendous job. I mean, Doug Jones, I'm pretty sure at this point, was actually born in prosthetics and has lived in them his entire life. But that this woman playing, uh, you know, a character not glimpsed anywhere near as often as Saru inhabiting the prosthetics, creating such real empathy, 
um, an understandable empathy at that, you know, the, the bitterness that her brother seems to have deserted her, her father, um, the trouble he's brought back with them. And now, uh, you know, visiting his quarters, uh, seeing him, seeing her planet from above for the very first time just did a tremendous job. And then you add to all of that uh, what could be a distraction for other actors in that, you know, she must have gone through the mental process or indeed the verbal process with other people to figure out. So what has Doug Jones defined as Kelpian movements, Kelpian this, Kelpian that? So that is to say she's not necessarily fully welcome to give any performance that she wants to kind of, you know, find the character yourself. It's like, find this character, but don't forget, Doug Jones defined how they walk, how they turn their head, how they click, how they this, how they that. So in a less capable actress, it would be, not only am I physically encased in all this rubber, but now my my acting is encased in, I got to do what that guy does, what his acting is. I have to somehow mirror that or feed off that. And None of this feels like a woman in plastic or rubber needing to act like Doug Jones. It feels like a real character who's part of this part of this real race. Our listeners can't see it, Matt. So I'll describe that right now I am rubbing my head against your forehead in agreement. Uh, bottom line, Pete, as the episode wraps up, uh, Seru and Burnham talk about loss and the added energy that Serana's new future gives to Seru. Wouldn't Burnham do the same for her brother? <gasps> Which is like a end of episode and a, a handoff, I suspect, to next week. And she knows where they need to go, which is exactly what Tyler had asked her and we had wondered in the last uh, episode of the series where we're going next. Pete, of course, for Discovery to head to the next stop, we have to take note of the fact that all our stops, all our podcast ports o call are made possible by the people who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek, making sure that our back catalog and our future plans all remain on the same mission log. We understand that not everybody can stay with Fantastic Geek as patrons forever, so we're thankful for whenever somebody is generous and kind enough to help us out, but always room for new people to cycle in there and to create a greater balance. Pete, threat analyses coming in from all over. Let's start within our own good ship discovery, Saru the Predator. I mean, the the bravery that Saru now has because of the loss of his threat ganglia, at the same time, a little over the top. We see the aggression. We see somebody trying to come to grips with their new physical and emotional reality and a great job done throughout the episode by the actors, uh, not just with Doug Jones, but the other ones with the reactions towards the statements and the actions he exhibited. I think top of that list is Anson Mount, who is tasked with not the kind of, you know, fiery, you know, uh, Martin Sheen as President Bartlett, you know, 
when when a, when this president enters the room no one sits everyone stands like pike does not get that moment here he is kind he is reflective he is listening which means he's not getting the thundery speech of on this on this bridge you listen and you follow orders and it's not you know kind of you can't handle the truth type stuff he has to try you can see what's going on behind his eyes pike's eyes that is in terms of well saru is going through a lot and there's been all these changes and clearly he feels passionate about this however now is not the time nor place and all of that and pike does not get all of that in dialogue but anson mount gets all that in acting and that they have to crack down that pike in particular has to crack down he's told saru not to jump in the conversation saru is obviously emotional and again compromised and pike understands um that he's been compromised because this is all so new to him but at the same time he's got a ship to run he's got uh you know diplomatic uh, possibly military operations to run and he can't have a literal loose cannon mat firing off keratin-based teeth on the bridge. That would not be acceptable. You're absolutely right. Uh, moving on to threats, Pete. The Baul, there's an argument to be made, which we could get into in a moment, of you know their perspective and all that. These are some of the scariest villains that we have ever seen in Star Trek, just in terms of their introduction, their look, their sound, their vocalizations, mm-hmm. everything. I love the effect that when their audio only transmission comes across, it somehow manages to darken the discovery bridge. And then you've got the, the readout of, of their, their wave files, Matt, you know, like, like some kind of, you know, malevolent podcasters, (laughs) but then they back it up with these massive ships and, and they're prepared to, uh, over one Kelpian who's who's found the truth, they're prepared to annihilate him and a Federation vessel. Uh, thankfully, the 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 pushback and you know the the seeming sacrifice by Saru, who's just become so important in this uh, story of his planet, um, you know, outs them as the one-time minorities who twisted things to become the majority it's a great concurrence of star trek elements here uh first and foremost as you said this idea that the villains uh were were once the oppressed and you know though i think our sympathies mostly are with the kelpians here to give that nuance is a you know is a reminder of looking for the new balance for the new fairness that works for both sides um i also think too in terms of this being a planet that is familiar and known uh not just to us but also to federation science uh but also because it's outside the federation it's like all right we've had a little interaction you know we kind of get some quite frankly kind of hermit kingdom north korea kind of stuff where you know we know the we know the broad strokes going on in that planet but they said stay away so we know where they are we kind of know what they're about but we don't know the inner workings uh, it, it was a great star trek thing as opposed to going to the familiar planet where every every last uh, you know street corner has been uh star trek google mapified the red angel matt friend or foe i mean the star trek aesthetic suggests that ultimately it will be this 
helpful force because we're looking for that affirmation. That said, think of the Borg episodes, the threat that is coming, um, and then the threat realized there was no upside to that. And there doesn't necessarily need to be a Star Trek happy ending to everything. Um, I, nonetheless, I'm inclined to agree with Pike's take that we've seen the people at Terralisium saved from certain death. We've seen young Burnham helped. Uh, we now see uh, what I think we could objectively agree is a better or the beginning of a better situation uh, on Kaminar. I know there's some people even online saying, wait, now that all these, now that the, 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 the Kelpian underclass is being uh, given the truth and uh, education and, and whatnot so quickly, isn't that going to upset the order of things? It's like, do you Star Trek, bro? Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think that that is not an unfair social concern to have. And I'm certainly not saying, hey, Baul, lock them up. But you know, uh, the whole planet is in for a power realignment, and that's courtesy of the Red Angel. Pete, on the long-range sensors, we have uh, a whole bunch of things to discuss. First and foremost, the hot topic on the internet this week, there were articles saying... Five reasons why the Red Angel is future Spock. And then there are other websites saying 10 reasons why the Red Angel future Spock is a dumb idea. So Pete is the Red Angel future Spock. I even saw the K word thrown around there, Matt. Not Kaminar, but Kelvin. Oh, man. It, it causes much fear. Well, uh, Pete, let's deal with one theory at a time. I am anti-Red Angel Spock theory uh what are your thoughts it's been stated in a number of pseudo official quarters that it is not future spock why why uh someone would think that future spock would appear to pass spock to tell him to find burnham and yeah it's it's not spock particularly i mean just from a just from a point of view in terms of um i don't know that it's appropriate like, if you're going to do future Spock, what are you going to do? Because clearly Leonard Nimoy is no longer with us. So you're going to do digital Leonard Nimoy? Okay, there's pros and cons. Uh, ask Rogue One how that works out sometimes. Um, just also, isn't that going to then take away... Like, if we saw future Spock that would suck the air out of everything in a way that did not happen in J.J. Uh, Star Trek, but could happen too much, and... And why? Why, when you've cast this young actor to play Spock of the time period? I, I suspect, Pete, this is one. This is maybe one of these things akin to The Last Jedi, where it's like, I must have my theory, and I must figure it out. It must be the first thing I think of. And if it's not, then you know, hopefully people don't turn angry like those Star Wars nerds. That we know with, you know, 99% accuracy that is not Spock, it ranges the question, raises the question, you know, who is the Red Angel? Why the universe would seem here to be so small that, as Pike points out, of all the first officers, of all the vessels, it appears above your isolated home world. So it's got to be somebody we know. Does it? I mean, when you put it like that, yes. And the show is certainly on the leading edge. 
And something that we oftentimes discuss is flavor of the show. And clearly they don't, they don't let a lot of these mysteries lie for a long time. Uh, and in fact, I was thinking this week of the uh, Next Generation episode, Conspiracy, which uh, the ending of which was, oh no, the signal has gotten out there to the bad guys. And actually, Pete, that was meant to be future bad guys who would come and attack, but they couldn't do insectoid people. So those that threat became the Borg, to be clear. The signal was not sent out to the Borg, but story-wise, it was, we're going to have some awesome bad guys start to show up next season, and this is the call to them, and then it was never resolved. You know, Discovery resolves things a lot quicker, but somebody who we already know, uh, I don't know if I'm crazy about that. Well, I mean, listen, we're going to solve this mystery of the Red Angel. This is going to happen in this season. Let's throw out some names. If it's not Spock, okay. Lorca? One of the versions of Lorca? Um, that would be a way to bring back nice Lorca, who could, whose body we haven't seen. That might, that might be the best guess of the list of one so far. What else is on your list? I know because he's returned in the flesh here, having been resurrected, that it wouldn't seem to be Culber, and that was a, a theory I posited before because the angel kind of looks like the medical caduceus but that culper's still having some difficulty so could this be him later on time traveling trying to set up these situations so that he came back one kind of big loop certainly star trek is no stranger to timey-wimey stuff um i don't know that it's ever done a time story with so big an arc to it. You know, normally it's, oh man, we got blasted back in time. Let's help the astronaut and then go back to our normal time, that that kind of thing. Um, which is to say it would be new territory, but also a bit familiar, you know, time travel familiar, but the, the arc of it less so. I kind of feel like if it's, if it's that close to all in the family, if it's somebody who's on the ship, that's maybe a little too close, but it depends how the show wants to roll it out. If indeed it is Culver. We're three signals down Matt of the total seven. So six episodes in three, 14 for the season. I think there's a mechanism baked in as well. Do we even need to visit all seven given that they don't seem to be static with all of them and then you open up the the sphere information that they've gathered this uh encyclopedia of the galaxy that okay from a writing standpoint we can conveniently just access because the robot crewman is now on and can do it more quickly and know oh this is uh, from this planet and these things have happened and boom there you go with your exposition i do think it's pretty unrealistic to be able to look up that information so quickly oh by the way pete wikipedia tells me conspiracy was written by tracy torme i just looked that up right now um joking aside i i i agree it kind of was like it was a convergence of conveniences that they have the spore data now that said if they need to get information from somewhere and we're going medium serial this season you know not full-on serial as it was 
with, with the first season and it's two parts, but you know, going a bit more quasi episodic, but still taking things from episode to episode. Well, you got to take something from prior episodes and, and this is a logical way to do it. Um, I don't know. I would agree with you, Pete, that we don't, I won't feel dissatisfied if we don't get to the seventh and final signal. And that is where it's revealed to be Q slash Culber slash Spock <laughs> of the future. You know, whatever it is, it doesn't need What's to be. What's Q doing in a mech suit though? I mean that, that it's been established that it's not a species, that it's an individual, I think makes it even more clear that it will be turned. It, it'll turn out to be somebody we know where I've heard of. Well, I mean, what does Q need with a mariachi band? It doesn't stop him from having one. <laughs> this is true. Pete, question for you, uh, kind of looking a bit metaphorically here. Saru and Culber both in this episode are reflecting on changes, reflecting on settling into a new situation, a new outlook. Any metaphor there for changing gender, changing orientation, things of that sort that are a bit contemporaneous to our times? It's interesting to look at what Culber has experienced through the the 21st century reality of, of gender fluidity. Um, I don't think it's it's meant to be taken directly that he had this scar that he was put into the, the new body made from his old DNA that's you know, fresh off the factory floor, pristine, um, it opens up possibilities. And that's where I'm wondering that, you know, they shoot him and they record the dialogue and, and do the, the camera effects to such a way that he's not quite settling in. Does it open up an out that he eventually moves on to a red angel persona? Or is, uh, is it, as we've discussed in prior podcasts, is it just, hey, we need to give him, you know, a two or three episode arc to get back to quote unquote normal, just as frankly, we kind of have seen, you know, a six or seven episode arc with Tyler in terms of, you know, I'm leaving the ship for goodsies, that's it. And then not in a couple episodes, then shows up as, you know, high up in the Klingon infrastructure, then on his way out of that, then 31, then now here he is on the bridge in a blue uniform, much like he was last season. I, I know it's with kind of character baggage, but Tyler in this episode is basically, you know, he's back to quote unquote normal. So I guess that's another option too for Colbert. We're just doing the thing, you know, where it's the, the, the effect, the after effect, the after, after effect. And then come episode 208, he's just like, hello, how may I help you with your sore throat today? With that, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. Pete, let's start with a very, very nice tweet that we had from Ryan Williams, who said, Fantastic Geek has won me over with another podcast. Their Star Trek Discovery show is as great as their Marvel shows and is now my go-to disco podcast. It's just so humbling. You know, years into this now, Matt, when, when people speak out about our podcasts and and promote them to other people so thank you ryan we had run our obligatory twitter poll uh for slots to vote four stars hope three stars sphere save two stars sassy sister one star armis 
Uh, and Pete, no votes for the one star. 12% said two stars. 12% said three stars. And uh, one of the higher rated episodes, at least as per our poll, uh, 76% saying four stars. Hope. The show continues to impress its viewers. And if you're not watching it, if you're one of these sad, lonely, you know, uh, quadruple uh, latinum uh, pass holders at conventions, and this is not your Star Trek. Again, you're you're only denying yourself. Two uh, tweets here. First from our pal James. That's at Big Killin. He said the short Trek, the Sphere episode, and tonight make up a nine-hour epic movie trilogy <laughs> packed into two and a quarter hours. The Kelpians are up there with the Klingons, Mandalorians, Wookies, and whoever you love in sci-fi. Great use of Saru's eyesight superpower that was shoved down our throats. Yeah, no, it's it's a big canvas of a story that they found multiple ways to tell. So, again, the creativity through uh, the streaming network here. And I think James pointing out another example of, again, looking for clues from the writing room, we had saru's eyesight mentioned a number of times in the past but certainly this season it kind of was refreshed and we were reminded that it was a thing uh and then it now becomes a, a rather key uh maybe not story moment but certainly key information moment uh pete a tweet from michelle that's at ml huber writes uh, and she says i think we found the species that left armis to suffer alone on that planet also a great episode i love seeing saru be so disobedient that he got kicked off the bridge Although Pike really should have taken a page out of Picard's book and had Saru escorted away. First on Armis, fairly certain it's been debunked that this is uh, the bowel and, and Armis directly connected. If I'm remembering correctly, Armis talks about how he's the embodiment of, of hate and anger and the galaxy kind of coalesced on that planet. Well, he might have been speaking metaphorically. I, I I think. Let me put it this way, Pete. Even if, even if the, the the show people say no, it's just another kind of you know, it was a way to present a dark water species, and we didn't mean it to be a shout out to Armis. I think there's a gray area between taking automatic cues from the, the the people involved with the show and then leaving that space for kind of genuine whether you want to call it you know headcanon or they want to call it interpretation you know if somebody wants to make a nuanced argument as to how those two species are connected i say go for it maybe unlike you know if they come out and say uh we can tell you for sure whatever's going to happen for the rest of the season this is absolutely positively the red angel is not spock all right, well, that's clearly delineating something and a major point versus kind of a more minor point of, of uh, you know, species background and things of that sort. Yeah, I mean, the the natives of Vagra 2 were credited via uh, Memory Alpha here, Matt, with creating uh, Armis. Now, could that be retconned and the Baul were originally there and did this? And I dig that it's close enough but again, like we've said before, you know, to, to change universes for a minute, it's it's the C-3PO effect. If Darth Vader is creating C-3PO and, you know, Picard is the Red Angel and, you know, Data's going to beam aboard and help uh, Aram and uh, Tilly figure out the sphere, 
then again, everything gets too tiny. Kid Noonien Soong is going to show up at the end of this season. <laughs> I mean, you, I mean, you're right. At a certain point, you need to find the new, not the old. I mean, all access. It's nice had... to get the nods to, yeah. to previous things, and you know, Fred has some some visuals that he shared with us to go along with his feedback uh, that make nods to other similar types of creatures in pop culture. Um, but you know, there's, we can't constantly in, invent new things and characters or species are going to be reminiscent of others. I'm kind of reminded that, you know, this week all access released their, the first kind of full length preview of their, their twilight zone revival. And, you know, people online, Oh man, are they going to get William Shatner back? And it's like, if the focus becomes, William Shatner is going to return to play one of his two characters from Twilight Zone. If that's the focus, then we're not going to be focused on what could be the next new, the, the next new great episode of Twilight Zone, the next right. great reflection of where we're at as a society now, if we're just concerned about, oh man, get William Shatner on the plane. But Pete, keeping the hailing frequencies open here, what do you have over there on Facebook? Robert T. Frost writes in about last week's episode, Matt and Pete, I had to interrupt listening to the podcast to leave this comment. If Amanda took the time to read Alice in Wonderland to Michael Burnham and Spock, I believe she certainly would have taken the time to bake them cookies. Hashtag Amanda's cookies. I choose my grandmother's hermits because I think they would be the most acceptable to a Vulcan. Very mildly sweet with raisins and goes perfectly with your favorite hot beverage. I M H O. I contend, Pete, that what we might call cookies uh, might not have a place on the planet Vulcan, but they could nonetheless have, you know, kind of soothing beet pastries that also are <laughs> high in antioxidants and help with. Uh, help with digestion, help with the bowels, no pun intended. Um, you know, that could take a similar place of, you know, of whatever. So, you know what? Let's challenge the listeners. Uh, send us your favorite Vulcan cookie recipes <laughs> and we will we will declare a winner at the end of the season. I, I'll amend my statement. And Amanda, being a human, would undoubtedly bake cookies and, and she did lavish um, her love and affection on these two children, a little bit more so, uh, Michael, as has already been explained earlier this season. But I don't think Vulcans themselves, yes, we will now make the the batter of the cookies. Like the word cookie wouldn't even translate into Vulcan. It's it's too it's too frivolous. There's too much emotion. It's funny, I've been going back and watching some Enterprise episodes because there's some Easter eggs in this year's, um, in this season's Discovery title card, Matt, that make some references to some things in Enterprise. Um, and now that there are uh, some more episode title uh, known coming, there's actually a, a direct reference so I went back and watched a couple episodes and it's funny, like obviously those are proto re proto Vulcans, you know, the prequel after, you know, so many years of Trek, but you know, for 
characters for a species that's supposed to be emotionless, there's an arc of several Vulcan episodes where several non uh, emotion Vulcans get very emotional. So maybe they got cookies after all. Who knows? You get your nice uh, gingerbread Salat uh, cookies there that uh, we can see uh, Michael decorating. I'll say this one quick thing on the Vulcan people, Pete. I think that as a people, if they want the wiggle room, you can declare something, oh, it's traditional. Like you look at some of the designs on the Klingon ships, it doesn't need all that ornamentation. Why? Well, it's uh, traditional or it's reflective of nature or it's an excuse we came up with to make a beautiful thing that we can't call beautiful. So again, I am pro Vulcan cookie. Mary Jane Zach writes in, hi guys. Last week, we got a good look at the mycelial network, but I've still got tons of questions about it, especially with reference to May. If she is a spore, how did she transform herself into an almost perfect copy of a real human being? This week, it's Kaminar, and I'm confused about it as well. In particular, I'm wondering why they would eat one another rather than enslave one another kelpians are supposed to taste good but that bowel didn't look very tasty to me well are we sure that the kelpians were eating the bowel or that it was some other sort of predatory thing like uh you know, I mean, we don't necessarily, I think a whale hunting that still is a, a, you know, an unfortunate reality today in some parts of the world. I don't know that it's always for whale meat or that might be a component, but we're talking whale oil or things of that sort. So maybe there was another use of the, of the bowel, uh, to the predator kelpians. I've cracked it, Matt. Fire away. The, the previously predatory kelpian hunted the bowel and then used the the flesh the oil what have you uh in trade with the vulcans who made cookies from it <laughs> it's all connected uh as to the mycelial network and may um if if the question is i mean we saw we saw the spore parasite pulled out we saw it increase in size where's that mass coming from i, I don't know stuff in the air i guess i, I think at a certain point it's the science is story magic um or she's from another plane of existence so the rules are a little different um i'll grant you you know in a strict you know mass shifting you know kind of that you know how there's that that, that cartoon bag where you can hold roadrunner can or, or the, the coyote can have a hammer behind his back and where does that come from there might be some of that going on with may but i, I feel like there's enough vague science to say yeah, other dimension and things. So now she's the size of a person when once she was in Tilly and barely noticeable. With that, Pete, let's hear from our pal, Fred in the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 6. First off, in the beginning, I had some nitpicks because at about six minutes into the episode... There is this discussion between Tyler Burnham and Pike about the red signals and they have in front of them, they have this star chart with red signals in it. And this is filmed in such a nervous way. Uh, I mean, the camera keeps spinning and spinning and spinning around them. 
I almost got seasick by it. For one minute and 15 seconds, it was just spinning around them. And I don't know why, it was a quite static conversation. And then, okay, if you do this a little bit, I don't know if you noticed it, but I found it quite annoying. What was very funny, of course, is that Saru didn't get up out of Pike's captain's chair. Pike didn't say anything. He just stared at Saru, and at a certain point, he understood he should get up. So I think that was funny. What was very well played was Saru opposing to Pike. On the other hand, I found it so out of character. We're so used to Saru being polite, etc., that I really have to get used to it. And I found it a little out of character, but actually it's not, because he is another character. And when Saru got in his almost argument with Pike, it was nice of Burnham to step in between and de-escalate it. And if you look at the ready room with Naomi Kyle, she has an interview with Doc Jones, who plays Saru. And he explained there that Saru, after losing his threat granglia, he got a little bit into adulthood or actually adolescence and is now, nah, well, more or less revolting and opposed to Pike and getting a, in a kind of father-son power struggle. Actually, Burnham stepped in here as a kind of mother. So if you want to listen to this or watch this, it's a very nice interview with Doug Jones and Ready Room is a kind of new aftertrack you can watch that on the CBS Facebook channel and also on YouTube. Although on YouTube it takes a while until the episode is on. What was a little strange is that when Pike made contact to the Baul and he said to Saru that he should not intervene and not take part in the conversation, that when Saru started saying something, Pike didn't remove him from the from the bridge immediately. And I think he, Saru was given the chance to say far too much. And at the end, Pike did remove Saru from the bridge, but that took quite a while. I didn't like at all how they portrayed the bowl. It reminded me of a action figure my son had when he was five, six or something like that, of Venom, one of the creatures out of one of the Marvel series. I think it was Spider-Man or something like that. Not very well done. Of course, I did like the film again at Bluffs Cliff and Beach in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. And actually, I walked along this shore where now Saru and Michael walked. It's Always a very surrealistic experience when they film at that site. And as told before, I visited that because also Orphan Black scenes were filmed there. And later I discovered Killjoys and The Expounds. And so it's a, it's a site they use a lot in Toronto for filming. One remaining question to be answered. Fred writes in there that, of course, Fred... Uh, Petrich. We've never pronounced his last name. So Fred, you got to hit us up with the proper pronunciation of your last name, even though it's Dutch and my grandfather was Dutch. Okay. How should it be pronounced? It's pronounced like a laboratory Petri dish. Uh, a lot of people make 
the mistake of saying Petrich, uh, not knowing that this I and J in my name are actually a Y with dots on it. It's an extra letter in the Dutch alphabet. And if you look, for instance, at the name of Rebecca Romain, you, you call her Rebecca Romain, but it's actually Rebecca Romain. So this Y with two dots on it is actually or pronounced as E or as A. And in Romain, it's I. And in Petri, it's E. So, giving you some Dutch language lessons here, Pete. Getting back to your roots. Okay, that was all for now. Greetings. All the best. Fred from the Netherlands. So, Pete, some takeaways there from Fred. First, your thoughts on the director's choice to have all that spinning camera work, particularly in the, uh, in the ready room there. Sometimes... And, and maybe it does not translate everywhere. Uh, they, they try to make it more dramatic uh, by the spinning of the camera. Uh, some directors attempt to do that, or maybe the director of photography. Um, I thought it worked. I thought it lent a little bit more urgency to their need to track down these seven signals. Some might not have thought that. I had wondered if it was director Doug Arniokoski's way of jazzing up a scene that was otherwise pretty talky and they're standing over this, you know, this unseen as they're filming it, holographic doodad and just a way to jazz things up. But comes uh, the breaks, I suppose. Pete, Fred also mentioned uh, how the Baul were portrayed. Your thoughts, and I, of course, say this in jest. I know Fred wasn't literally suggesting it or actually suggesting it, but your thoughts are the Baul possible symbiotes from Marvel's Venom? They're not. I'm surprised that a smart cookie like Fred wouldn't point out the, the Armis similarities um, either. Uh, and Fred did share the photos of his uh, son's uh, action figure. It looks kind of similar. Like I said before, it's inevitable that certain species may overlap or have hallmarks or maybe even um Bo Yun Kim and uh, Erica Lipholt wrote it in the script like we see Marvel's Venom no this is the Baul <laughs> lastly Pete how'd you do on your Dutch language last name test well I was close uh but apparently I was saying the the J I thought Peach Reach uh but Petrie now uh, and again, getting a little more back to my roots and until I can get to Holland. Pete, we hear from so many people each week. How can I be like Fred? Well, the answer is you got to be in touch. He chooses to email his voice stuff there. But Pete, I think the best way to start out is to reach out to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E -E 10,317 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek, all one word with the PH, like it today. 
Also want to mention, if you want to hear your voice on the podcast, you know, Fred is emailing us the stuff he records. Another way to do it, at least in these United States, you can leave a message on our listener line, 732-707-1815. Leave a message there. And Google Voice will get that message to us. Another surefire way, Matt, and a needed one at that. We're putting out the uh, distress call for iTunes reviews. Uh, so get to iTunes, leave Discovery, a Star Trek podcast uh, by Fantastic Geek, some feedback there, and we will read that on the podcast. Well, Pete, a quiet week ahead on the Pop Culture Podcast, but I know that we will be discussing our trip to the Paley Center in New York to talk Godfriend and me. And before you know it, it'll be next weekend, and we are back talking the next episode of Star Trek Discovery, one that you tell me is going to have all sorts of interesting things and revelations and exciting things. I don't know. I'm spoiler-free, but I can't wait to talk it. So with that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Enduring something no one thought possible can be transformative. Transformative.